So back in 2020, I, Steven Schinder, started a podcast called Delayed Replay, recapping and reviewing the latest films. However, it got broadcast into an alternate universe, where those films got delayed and came out differently from how I was describing them. Because of how me and my guests had been describing the films, people in that other universe were saying that this was all an improvised comedy podcast, which, listening back, I can totally get why they believe that. A lot of weird stuff happened in that first year, and I even met my other self from that other universe, who pops in from time to time, for better or worse. And now, in the year 2023, this podcast continues, still recapping and reviewing movies and sometimes some other things that got delayed or cancelled in that other universe. New episode Saturdays, every other week, unless I decide otherwise for some special reason, or whatever. You are listening to Delayed Replay, Season 4. Hey everyone, first off, before Zach and I talk about the fourth Star Trek Kelvin movie, I just want to bring up a few things really quick. Uh, so, my new novel, Standalones and Stepping Stones, Trespassing Through the Visages, is out now, currently on ebook, and it will be on paperback and hardcover in the near future as well. And the first book, Lemons Will Like Rain, is finally on hardcover and is, of course, still available as an ebook and paperback. So, here's the blurb for Trespassing Through the Visages, which I'll just read real quick uh, in case any of you are interested. Long ago, every planet was part of a larger planet called Myunus Grund, before the kin conflicts broke the world apart in more ways than one. Now the machinations of those responsible have caught up to people on Earth. A bath bomb turns one's skin into its own separate entity vying for control. Two murderous brothers who have been on the run break into a family's home and try to avoid being captured and a man who disappeared as a child tries to set things right as he remembers his sister. Threats loom above in this perilous journey through space and time. So yeah, you can find that on Amazon, and it's very spacey, so kind of on brand to bring it up in this episode. And to that point, I also wanted to include a review of Babylon 5, The Road Home, so that'll be at the end of this episode. It's the new Babylon 5 animated movie. It just came out on Tuesday, the same day that my ebook came out. And the physical release, I ordered it so that it would make its way home, uh, to, you know, to my home. Hey, the road home. So I'll talk about that at the end of this. So you won't be spoiled here. And on that note of new movies, watch Blue Beetle. It is a good film. It's very refreshing. Again, no spoilers. I'll probably go more into spoilery discussion on a future episode of Delayed Replay that's more comic book movie themed. I actually watched it uh, right after Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem, so I did kind of a Blue Tint Teetle double feature. And Mutant Mayhem, I didn't really like all that much. Uh, some of the humor felt kind of cringy to me. 
and it felt like it was kind of trying too hard with a couple of gross-out moments. Uh, but maybe other people will like it. I, I seem to be the outlier from the looks of it. But yeah, I, it's it does have a, st- a nice Star Trek reference. You know, there's uh, a little discussion of who's the better Chris. And so, uh, of course, since it's Paramount, uh, there will be that little nod there, of course. So it, I thought that was a funny moment, at least. But yeah, Blue Beetle, it was very satisfying. Very invested in that character's journey, and it's very self-contained. You don't need to have watched any other DC movies. You could kind of slot it into whatever DC universe you want, really. But yeah, it had heart. I love the music, and I won't go into specifics until a later point. And I'll go into more specifics with Mutant Mayhem on an upcoming uh, delayed replay episode that's more animated movie-themed, and I might even throw in a segment about my thoughts on the state of animated movies, you know, recent ones, so that could be interesting. But yeah, so check the timestamps so that uh, you see what's going on after this Star Trek movie discussion. Uh, there will be a Strange New World Season 2 uh, sort of overall thoughts segment, you know, after I do the plugs at the end. And there will be non-spoiler thoughts followed by spoiler thoughts. My friend Liana Ahmed sent in a message to contribute to that. And then after that will be the Babylon 5 The Road Home segment. So for each of those, I'll try to begin with non-spoiler stuff and then go into spoiler stuff so yeah check the timestamps for this episode and without further delay enjoy the discussion hello listeners welcome to another episode of delayed replay that podcast where we recap and review movies that got delayed in that other universe but came out on time or somewhat on time in our universe i'm your host as always steven schinder And joining me to talk about the fourth Kelvin Star Trek movie titled Star Trek Forward, it is Mr. Zach Arnold from IPC and Fandom Empire. How's it going, good sir? Hey, Steven. Thanks so much for having me back. I got to um, have a little bit of a retrospective and and listen in on, on my last appearance talking about Indiana Jones and uh, I, I enjoy the Star Trek universe just as much, if not more so, than the uh, Indiana Jones universe. And so uh, for for those to be my two most recent appearances on this program are, are very fitting, and I'm super excited to be back. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for taking up the invite. Uh, so what, what have been your experiences with Star Trek? Like, how'd you get into it, and what's been your overall journey with the franchise i guess you could say um man uh star trek has been as much of a journey in my life as star wars i would say i was definitely brought up on star wars as a kid um i watched the original trilogy endlessly uh especially on the the vhs special edition and uh anytime i had friends or family over like we were watching uh you know return of the jedi or something like that and for the longest longest time i always considered star wars to be the superior star product and it just it wasn't even a discussion in my mind 
And something happened around the age of, I want to say, 13 or 14. I started watching Star Trek at home with my family. Um, I think it was on the Nintendo Wii. Do you remember when you could watch Netflix on the Nintendo Wii? I remember being able to watch Netflix on my PlayStation 3. So mm-hmm. kind of similar, but also more around like, those lines. Yeah, very yeah. early days of streaming before there were smart TVs and fire sticks and things like that. You had to open up an application on your gaming system to watch episodes. And we started with The Next Generation because that was a show that my dad watched when he was about my age that I am now. Um, And we watched all the way through Next Generation. We watched all the way through Deep Space Nine, all the way through Voyager. Like, I would say a good part of my late junior high into um, high school years was surrounded by getting caught up on shows and, and movies that I had missed out on when I was younger or was just um, not around for a period. I mean, Next Generation started before I was born. So um, as I got more exposed to all the different types of Star Trek that are out there, I just became more and more of a fan. And uh, when the 09 Kelvin film came out, I was seeing it like within the first week. I don't think I saw it opening weekend, but I saw it very, very soon after that. And to be able to watch Star Trek in the theaters was just a whole other experience. And after that, I was just on board. I got all of the series on DVD, even Enterprise. Like I would get the complete set, multiple discs. I've got just about every Trek you can imagine. The the movies, Kelvin or otherwise, all of the sh- all of the series. Um, I don't have Discovery because I'm waiting for that complete series to be finished before I purchase it. But if it uh, if it does get released on disc, I'm definitely buying that as well. Um, I would say I'm just as much of a Trekkie as I am anything else. In fact, in some cases, I think there are certain episodes or or pieces of Star Trek that I probably find more enjoyable than certain pieces of Star Wars. So that's part of why I do the IPC podcast, because I don't really want to talk about one over the other. I enjoy them both quite a lot. Yeah, like that's basically the mission statement of the Intergalactic Peace Coalition, like being able to talk about multiple fandoms, which is great, you know? Yeah, yeah. I didn't want to be like completely bound to to one franchise because i love the jurassic franchise you know i love the dark knight trilogy i love indiana jones and to to be able to have the freedom to talk about any one of those um is something that i i never try to take for granted and so um i'm just excited that we get to hone in on star trek tonight because i'll admit ben probably isn't as big of a trek nerd as, as i am and rightfully so he's got a whole huge following regarding star wars and it's it's a great following it's a great podcast but i really love getting to talk trek with like big trek fans so i'm excited for this episode yeah so as for my star trek journey um i remember well first off my grandpa was really into the original series and i think 
because of him. My dad really enjoyed it as well. And the movies for that. Um, he may have caught glimpses of the later stuff in the like 80s, 90s. But uh, when me and my older brother Alex were kids, the thing that I remember seeing that was Star Trek related, um, we probably watched some of the original series cast movies. But mm -hmm. the one that I always remembered glimpses of was the voyage home uh you know seeing spock dive into the like uh tank that has the whale and then the ending scene where they're all lined up and have oh, completed their mission and whatever um and i know it's like kind of a can of worms that movie like i i know it's very upfront with its message but i'd argue it's a good message you know save the whales um and it's also like, you might agree or disagree with this, but I think it's got some nice comedic moments, that one. Um, but then, apart from that, I wasn't really... Like, growing up, um, I, I was more of a Star Wars fan and sort of, I guess, was kind of uh, quote-unquote infected with that idea that like you can only like one and that star trek is probably not as cool as star wars but then um the 2009 reboot movie uh really caught my older brother's attention and got him back into the franchise uh in a way and so i kind of got glimpses of that and then we watched Into Darkness in the theater, and by that point, I'd started. Um, I was very much the Netflix generation, uh, like you mentioned, and mm -hmm. started going through like the original series. Uh, and then after that, in the animated series, I went through, you know, TNG, DS9, Voyager, Enterprise, and then all the movies, and then caught Beyond in the theater. Um, so, and you know, like Into Darkness, I remember liking a lot when I watched it. But in retrospect, like watching it again now, I'm like, you know, there's it. It's not as enjoyable to me anymore now that I have like all this hindsight of what it did right and what it did wrong. Um, and then Beyond, like I know that Beyond got a lot of praise from fans, but I didn't like it quite as much as the 2009 film i might be in the minority but yeah like basically tng and ds9 became my top favorites but i enjoyed all of the series and then with paramount plus we got like a trek renaissance with the likes of discovery picard uh strange new worlds prodigy um lower decks so we got a nice variety and then um like Discovery kind of became my Star Trek in a way because it was the first one I watched as it aired week to week and there's something exciting about that and more recently I've been really enjoying the current second season of Strange New Worlds so um, and you know I, I still love Star Wars but I think overall I tend to be happier with the Trek television content that's been coming out a bit more so than the wars content if that makes sense oh it, it completely does and, and that's probably the camp that i find myself in too like i think i would probably call 
Strange New Worlds, my show, if that's the the description that you're giving. Like I, I did watch Discovery um, probably on a, on a semi-weekly basis, maybe every other week. Um, but I think I have been really looking forward to Strange New Worlds a lot more. I just I find it to be this, this great balance of taking you on new adventures and giving you that classic Star Trek sense of completion and wholesomeness, but at the same time expanding the world and giving you new stories. And it's that episodic feel that that show provides that has like a full circle moment where everything is somewhat happily ever after by the end of the episode. And you can kind of feel the way viewers felt in the sixties, probably when they were watching their star Trek, it's like, Oh, there's a crisis and it's been resolved. And now you can't wait for next week, but it's okay. If you end up missing next week, you can just get caught up or watch this current week and you don't miss a whole lot. So I think Strange New Worlds has kind of become, quote unquote, my show, and I'm trying my hardest to get my wife into it, but uh, I think I might have to settle for watching The Mandalorian with her. (laughs) At least I've got her watching a Star Wars show, but I don't know if I can get her into Star Trek all that much. Right, yeah, and yeah, Star Trek... um... Like, I think you have a good point that Strange New Worlds, I think, is sort of the crowd pleaser among the fans. Like, Discovery, I feel, was needed in order for Trek to evolve. But Strange New Worlds has, like, a good mix of classic and new stuff. And you get characters like Nurse Chapel with more of a personality. And Chris Pike, you know, he's his fate is known, but he can still be optimistic with the time that he still has as captain. Yep. And it's, it's very inspiring. And I know there's like the rivalry with the Orville, which like when that was airing alongside discovery, you know, I enjoyed some of the Orville. I, I thought it had some hits and some misses, but I, I kind of wish the Orville had aired during the time when we didn't have Trek television like between enterprise and discovery so that there wouldn't have been such a heated rivalry but the third season i thought had some surprising stuff in ways good and in my opinion not so good but it still became more of its own thing in some ways which i appreciated and uh now with star trek the show's you know, with the different eras and the different types of storytelling and you even have animated and live action. Like, it's such yeah. a great mix of new stuff, which I really appreciate. Well, and then to just add on top of that, a lot of what we had been getting from the Star Trek universe had been on on the, on the small screen. And we had to, you know, watch them on our phones or on our computers, on our TVs, what have you. Um you know, since beyond it's, it's been several, several years since we've had any Trek on the big screen. And so to, to have this new one, um, it just continues that Renaissance even further. I love that word. I, I love the, the concept that we're getting a revival of something that has been around for decades and it's being introduced to a whole new audience, not just on, a, on an app, but also in, in the movie theaters, which is really awesome. Yeah, for sure. 
And during like the breaks between seasons or episodes, I I find myself like reading some of the like Trek books that you can sometimes get for like 99 cents as ebooks on the Simon and Schuster site. And I've even read some of the comics thanks to Humble Bundle over the years. So like even though the screen stuff is what's considered canon. Because Star Trek has parallel universes, it's like any story could be just their own universe, you know? And so it's not that much of a stretch to think of something being valid, but in a separate timeline, which we pretty much get with the Kelvin films. As you know, the 2009 movie was showed the catalyst that created this new universe without wiping out the old one and we even get like little acknowledgments of it in uh picard you know it's part of the backstory in a way and um a a brief mention in discovery season three of a character who hopped from one timeline to the other so it's nice that with this new movie we now have both of these timelines going on at at the same time on the screens that is the one area that can be a little confusing for non-track fans. Right, yeah. <laughs> because people like my wife are just like, so he's Spock, and then she sees Ethan Peck when I'm watching Strange New Worlds, and he's like, but he's also Spock? And so, like, that is is one area of disconnect that can be a little confusing to clarify sometimes. But I personally love the variety of storytelling because, like you said, when you have something that is set in another timeline in another universe, you have the freedom to tell whatever story you want. And it gives a lot of flexibility for character development for, uh, for the writers who are writing the, the series or the movie. Um, you don't have to worry about those conflicting interests like you do with the star Wars universe. You know, you've got, you know, tons of really great stories that you could tell in star Wars, but it's all part of the, the legends canon. But, you you can tell different pieces of different canon through different universes with this type of storytelling. And I, I like the freedom that that offers. Yeah. And I can see how it can be confusing to casual viewers, especially when they put out sure. this movie just a week before Strange New World season two premiered. But I guess they really wanted to continue the Trek hype train in a way, which as a Trekkie, I'm all for, but I can see how it can be confusing to some. Sure, sure. It's it's just it's one of those things that you you have to set up your your timeline for when you think people are going to view it the most. And summer blockbusters are always the best time for something like that. And so you kind of have to set up uh, a film like this in a time where there should be some relative success at the box office. And I think they did that because some people may only be interested in the Calvin timeline and some people may only be interested in the Paramount plus um, storylines. So um, it's only, I, I would call it only a, a, a portion of the Venn diagram that, that overlaps and probably an even smaller percentage of that overlap that gets confused. Yeah. So for this one, 
they've talked with different directors over the years, like Quentin Tarantino, S.J. Clarkson, Noah Hawley, and Matt Shackman. And eventually they decide, okay, we'll just have all of them co-direct this. So with this one, you kind of get interesting pacing because, you know, of the director's different styles. And we'll talk about, like, mm-hmm. how we feel about it as a whole by the end. But what did you think of this decision to use four directors at once? I mean, you know, Tarantino is such a fantastic director that as soon as his name was attached to the project, I was already in. But then you you take a look at somebody like S.J. Clarkson, who obviously is not as big of a name as Quentin freaking Tarantino, you know? But you you take a look at some of the stuff that she has done, and she's worked on some Netflix series like Jessica Jones and the Defenders. Uh, She's been a part of shows like HBO's Succession, And she even um, was a director on Orange is the New Black and the unaired uh, Game of Thrones prequel pilot. So there are some big, really well-written, really good storytelling pieces that are a part of Clarkson's resume. And if you go to IMDb and look up people like Holly and and Shackman as well, you're going to see similar results. And so to, to have that wealth of experience attached to such a vast universe as star trek i don't really have very many complaints with it you know you're, you're right that you can kind of notice when there may be kind of a a differentiation in the way that the this particular scene is shot or you know the lens flare present versus not present that sort of thing um but as a whole i i think part of the the beauty is found in the mess because that's kind of what Star Trek is. It can be a little messy. It can be a little confusing at times. And so to, to have them find a way to incorporate that into a story that doesn't super detract from the story um, is actually pretty creative. So I think it would have been interesting to see what somebody like just Tarantino could do with it. But I'm I'm not as opposed to it as I thought I would be. Right. Like with Tarantino, I think part of the reason um, for this idea was he wasn't sure if he wanted this to be his 10th film. So it's like nine nine and one quarters instead. (laughs) Right. Well, it's based, I guess, in a way he sees it kind of like the movie Four Rooms, which that one was kind of different in that it was an anthology with four different, uh, I guess, storylines, each directed by a different person. Now, the format isn't quite like that here, but I think that's kind of his loophole for getting around calling this his 10th film where he wrote and directed everything, if that makes sense. Um, And I also think, you know, Tarantino, when he talked on a podcast like, several years ago about like if he would ever make a star wars movie and he talked about how he'd rather make a star trek movie and how he likes the episode i think it's yesterday's enterprise um he sounded like he knew his stuff but then like years later on some other podcasts he sounded confused about 
the Kelvin timeline being a separate timeline and really wanted it to be a prequel to the original stuff. So I feel like they kind of needed someone to, you know, rein him in and make sure he's working within the confines of how this timeline stuff is supposed to work. I think they did a decent job with that. Um, These other directors, they each had at least one Marvel thing to their credits. Um, I think we mentioned Jessica Jones for Clarkson. Um, Matt Shackman did WandaVision and I think is also doing the Fantastic Four movie. Um, And Noah Hawley, I mean, he did Legion. I mean, a few years ago, we talked about how uh, in this universe, you were almost on that show. And apparently the Zack of the other universe was almost on The Gifted. So go figure. Oh, wow. Um, but yeah, he uh, Shackman was the director of nine episodes of all nine episodes of WandaVision. So, yeah, he was, he was pretty much the primary on that. I'm trying to see. He was apparently the director of two episodes of Game of Thrones. And I'm trying to figure out what two episodes that he directed, because that's actually really cool. Um, let me see. Uh, the Spoils of War and Eastwatch. Both of those are really good episodes. Hot damn. Uh, the Spoils of War, I believe. Dang. Okay, so those, I think those are both Season 7 episodes. That's fantastic. Hey, um, I'm a bigger fan of Shackman now. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's pretty damn cool, actually. Those are those are two really good episodes. Um, so, yeah, I, I think for continuity's sake, you do need somebody to rein in Tarantino, and I, and I think... Um, to be able to tell something from an expansive universe, you need somebody with experience in an expansive universe. And it sounds like Clarkson and Shackman both have experience in uh, Game of Thrones and Marvel. So um, I think that just furthers my point that having having an ensemble like this um, creates versatility and opportunity. And, and I think those are two words that uh, that I would use to uh, to describe this film. Yeah, or Star Trek in general, you know, versatility and yeah exactly Ruth it's yeah exactly um also side note I always thought it was kind of a missed opportunity to call the Star Trek expanded universe stuff the Trek expanded universe um (laughs) you know though you know that so many people would mispronounce it and think you were talking about an expanded universe for an ogre in a swamp (laughs) Yeah, Shrek expanded universe. The Shrek expanded universe, exactly. Yeah, you know that's gonna happen. Yeah, I've also heard people pronounce it, um, or not pronounce it, but call the most of the books the Pocket Universe because they were put out by Pocket Books, which I also quite like as a name. Oh, that's clever. Yeah, clever. It's almost like it's taking place in like Professor Moriarty's tiny universe or something. Yeah, I thought you were going to say Moriarty's pocket, but yeah. Well, I mean, that would be kind of interesting if he had like he lived inside of a pocket universe and then he had like his own little pocket universe that he carried around in his pocket. That's that's some Rick and Morty stuff right there. Yeah. Also, like side note for Picard, I was kind of surprised that Moriarty didn't play as big of a role as the trailer made me think he would. Um, So. Yeah, so that was like a little bit of a negative for me, but I was still mostly happy with the story that was told overall. 
I feel like the final season of Picard was like just a big series of cameos so that they could give everybody a send off rather than just Patrick Stewart. And so to have him in it at all was was nice. It was impressive that they found a way to work him in. But for those that are big fans of his character, I can definitely see why there'd be some disappointment attached to that. Yeah, I mean, if he had not been in the trailer, it would have been I think it would have played off better because there's a, a press nice surprise instead of an anticipation. Yeah, because there was a precedent yeah. for season two's marketing focusing on Q and he's the overarching uh, villain, basically, for season right. two. Yeah. Um, so that kind of set my expectations. But overall, for the most part, I was happy. Um but getting to Star Trek forward, first of all, what do you think of that title for this fourth Kelvin movie? I mean, I think it's appropriate because they're trying to literally move the story forward. It's probably a little too on the nose. My thing has always been if I feel like I can write something better than what was written and presented in front of me, then I feel like it was a waste of money. I don't necessarily feel like the story itself was a waste of my time and money, but I feel like I probably could have come up with that title and gotten paid for it. And so, yes, it's fitting, but it's also kind of obvious and on the nose. Yeah, it's not very innovative, I guess you could say, but I do kind of like how if you think of 10 forward, you almost think of like 10 plus four and that's, 14 and this is the 14th star trek film you know oh that's you really think that went into the decision making process for the naming of this film uh maybe <laughs> i feel like that's only something a trekkie would think of and then yeah, would probably. say it and then tarantino would be like oh that's convenient yes we'll go with that uh-huh that's exactly what i was thinking yeah like maybe i could have come up with that i don't know about these <laughs> writers and directors maybe it was just a coincidence it, I feel like in all likelihood it probably was because I, I think when they're talking about forward, they're trying to figure out how to move the characters forward. They're trying to figure out how to move the story forward. They're trying to figure out how to, you know, tell something else and tell it differently than it's been told before. And I, I think by making it an R-rated film, they definitely did that. Um, you know, with Discovery, the precedent has already been set for a little bit more uh, mature themes and, and mature content. And so to, to be able to, I wouldn't say necessarily take that ball and run with it, but to follow that precedent and tell a story that is very different from the previous three films um, was, was a bold move. But as somebody who has kind of grown up with Star Trek, it's nice to see a grown up version of Star Trek on the big screen. Yeah. Like some people kind of forget that uh, Data saying the S bomb in Star Trek Generations. So like, it's it's not like the F bomb was like too much of a stretch. It's just like a couple decades later, and uh, I I feel like the way that it dropped in Discovery was actually pretty funny, and it worked. Like, and uh, I think there is a place for. Uh, that type of language, depending on the situations in Star Trek. Like, I don't think it's like, oh, if you use this language, you're ruining the property. Like, 
no. What and like there's a I think Star Wars Andor almost used an F bomb and maybe in the speech that they were thinking of using that, it might not have fit, but I think the line of dialogue they were thinking of using could have worked in a different context. Like if someone was just fighting stormtroopers and then that person was just like F the Empire, like I think that could have worked. Well, you you take the f bomb that gets used in this film. It happens a couple of times, but the the one that stands out to me is in the. I, I guess it's like a hospital. It's kind of a makeshift type of place. It's almost like a triage. Reminded me very much of uh, the TV show Mash, where you're you're assessing the needs, or maybe that DS Nine episode where Bashir and Jake are are on the front lines of the Dominion War. It was it was something that kind of reminded me like that. And in those types of of stressful situations with explosions going on around you and you've got blood spurting every which way and, you know, everybody's all freaked out and frazzled and low on sleep and high on adrenaline, um, it stands to reason that, you know, if you if you poke a blood vessel and blood spurts up into your face like it did for that nurse, then, yeah, naturally you're going to say the F word. That's just that's just one of the the things that is going to happen. And. I I don't think that it's a bit of a stretch to to use the F word in Star Trek. I know that that's been debated about how language evolves over centuries and slang drops off and picks up, but uh, you know the F word has been in our vernacular for at least sixty years, and it's it's kind of not really changed in all that time. So for that to even be a quote-unquote outdated expletive in Star Trek terms, I think it's still appropriate in in the context in which it was presented. Yeah, I think a certain sect of Star Trek fans would lose their minds if Gene Roddenberry came back to life and he was like, oh yeah, I always intended to use the F-bomb, but they wouldn't let me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I I feel like he definitely would. I think he uh, was was he around when Generations came out, or had he already? Um, he might have passed away, but actually, let me look this up. The Gene, yeah, because I always forget the year that he. I knew I knew uh, that he was. He okay, was... he passed away in ninety one. I believe that was before Generations. Then. Yeah. So. The, my point being, I think he would have been proud of hearing Data say the S word. I I think he would have cheered at something like that. And yeah. so, for for this to be just a a common part of the vernacular, and for the gore to kind of be increased a little bit, having a lot of you know blood and and bones exposed and stuff like that, that's very very Tarantino. If you look at movies like Inglorious Bastards and Django and things like that, like there's definitely a lot more blood. There's definitely a lot more intensity, and in a in a sequence like that, you you definitely can see his philosophy and his approach being incorporated into the Star Trek universe. Yeah, and I also just realized that you can't spell next generation or generations without Gene. So I kind of wonder if maybe he was like being sneaky with that. The next but, um, generation. That sounds like a Bob's Burgers episode. Yeah. <laughs> Throwback to when we did that Bob's Burgers the movie episode. <laughs> oh man, I love that movie. I'm just gonna put that out there. But yeah, 
<laughs> yeah, coldest take I've ever heard. <laughs> Just opinion everyone has. Uh, um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> My wife didn't care for it, but I don't think she cares for the show in general. So. Oh, okay. Well, too late. But anyway. <laughs> yeah. Um. So speaking of Bones getting exposed, Bones himself, you know, Leonard McCoy, mm-hmm. n- not to be confused with Leonard Nimoy. Um, confused us? Uh, right. <laughs> but um, yeah, Bones is feeling a lot of stress being at this hospital on this swamp world where the crew is trying to like help out while there's this like outbreak that's happening and bones is like seriously considering retiring and he's thinking of his wife and daughter and um like we've never gotten like this much focus on bones uh at least not in the other kelvin movies like they really spotlighted him here and like what's going through his head I mean, it's about time. It's that, that's all I've got to say. There, there are so many films out there that show what a fantastic action actor Carl Urban is. And for him to finally be in the spotlight and not just be a, a, a badass doctor, which he plays that part so well, but to have flashbacks and have moments where he can actually take a step back and flesh out his character a bit. That's not even something that DeForest Kelly got to do all that much when he was the original McCoy. So to to expand on this character with with this much time and this much depth, this much attention, uh, the doing spot character development is old hat. And to to do something like this was a bold move. But I think it was the right move. We've had so much Kirk. We've had so much Uhura. We've had so much Spock to to be able to do something. I mean, even Scotty had a lot of development in in Beyond. So to give Bones his due was very appropriate. And to incorporate those flashbacks in the middle of this triage, in the middle of this really, really tough situation, it kind of amplifies what things would I be thinking about if I was in his place? You know, I, I, I'm sitting there going, am I going to be thinking about my wife? Am I going to be thinking about my family? Am I going to be thinking about being on a different planet where I'm not stuck in this swamp, you know, fixing flesh wounds? Like what, what is, what is my priority going to be? And that type of commentary was able to show in Bones's character without having to say it outright. And I thought that was was very clever and very well done. Yeah, like the nightmares he has like mm-hmm. are made to be really surreal looking. Like you can tell that Noah Hawley directed this this nightmare sequence where, you know, there are all the important people in his life and they're getting all stretched out and the lighting is very frenetic. It's just horrifyingly beautiful to look at which is the thing um also another bold choice that this movie makes is it is set at a time when they are finally approaching the end of the five-year mission which Mm -hmm. we never we never got to see explicitly on screen you know there are multiple tellings 
of how it happens in comics and in books. I think even one of the books suggested that uh, a one five-year mission ended and then another one began, I guess, to account for how there's like a ton of stories set in the TOS era and they need wiggle room. But yeah, like they're approaching the end of the five-year mission. You even see live-action versions of Eric's the three-armed alien and Mares the uh the feline looking one uh, both from the animated series is that what they were okay so truth be told I'm not super familiar with stuff from the animated series and so there there were some things in that that confused me because I I saw like somebody else in the theater kind of gasped when those characters showed up. And I was like, what is yeah. like, what context am I missing? So that clarifies a lot of things. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, but I, I do really like the idea of a five-year mission being complete because it's almost like an enlistment period in the military. You know, your two years are up, your three years are up. What are you going to do now? Do you re-up for another enlistment for another mission? Or do you consider reassignment? Do you want to remain the captain of the Enterprise? Or do you want to, you know, get a cushy job in San Francisco and settle down? Like, there's a lot that is weighing on people to figure out what the next move in their career is going to be. And so the 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 balance of that is really tough. and. I I do think that they probably should have honed in on maybe like two or three people at the most um, as far as those really tough moments of introspection and trying to figure out what to do with their careers. The fact that they basically did it for almost every member of the bridge crew was something that I felt like dragged the story along uh, a little bit too much. I want people to have representation. I want people to have character development. I don't want it to happen at the expense of the pacing of the programming. And I feel like it did happen a little bit at some points where like we've got action, action, action. Oh, what's Sulu going to do? Moment, moment, moment. Oh, what's Uhura going to do? Uh, you know, like they they would almost stop and pause whatever the the moment was or whatever the event was or whatever was happening it's almost like like a like a sidebar that just sometimes felt a little forced and so i i think they had the right idea i'm just not sure if the execution was how i would have done it and maybe that's a, a product of having all those different directors yeah i kind of see what you mean uh like they do focus on the crew individually a lot when they have those introspective moments like, you even have Jayla from Star Trek Beyond. Like, she sees these last couple years with the crew as the most exciting time of her life. And now she's like, what am I going to do now type thing? Yeah. yeah. But but um, while I do appreciate the exploration of the characters, I can kind of see how this might have worked better for a TV show than for a yes. feature film where the runtime's yes. more limited. Yes, completely agree, because it's just under three hours, and I feel like they probably could have done it in like 220 if they hadn't done all of those different sidebars. And so 
I, I just I think pacing wise, there there were a couple of issues where maybe it's it's good to have one or two lines from Jayla where you know you're thinking about what's going to happen to her next. Um, but we didn't need like a whole scene. You know what I mean? Or they'll they'll have a scene where like three or four members of the bridge crew are having dinner together or having drinks together, and they're all batting around their different career possibilities off of each other for what feels like 10 minutes. And I'm like, let's do something else. Let's talk about something else. And we never do. And so I think you're right. I think if there had been like a whole season where like one episode, we're focusing on what Uhura's career choices might be. We've had, we have an episode about what Scotty's career choices might be after these five years, et cetera, et cetera. Then maybe we can account for that type of pacing. But I I don't know for, for a a feature film that's like 245, 250, something like that, I think it's probably 20 or 30 minutes too much. Yeah, because I think it's nearly an hour before uh, we get the event that pretty much kicks things into high gear. And that's the return of Chris Hemsworth to this uh, series. Um, well, well, before we get to that, what did you think of how they honored uh, Anton Yelchin with this one? Like how they handled that whole thing with Chekhov? You know, I've, I've been back and forth on this because some people have really, really loved it. And then there are some people that have really, really not loved it. I, I think it's appropriate that you would have like a way to address it right off the bat. And that way you can kind of see people mourning and, and see how it factors into their decision making. You know, you lose a member of your crew while on this five year mission, you lose a critical member of your crew. And now everybody is thinking, what if I'm next? Like from that point of view, I get it. And I appreciate that they give you, you know, there's a crisis, but you don't see him actually die. But everybody knows that's what happened. So you have like Bones and, and Chekhov and, you know, a red shirt on some sort of away mission. Bones doesn't like using transporters. So, of course... You know, you're going to be trying to make your way back up to the ship on a on a on a shuttle and you sustain heavy damage and have to do an emergency transport before the shuttle blows. And Bones is the only one who makes it back. You don't see Anton Yelchin, but you see what his character's fate is. And so. To, to have that be the thing that kind of helps set the tone for what everybody else's decision-making is going to be for the rest of the movie, I think was really good. I think it was really well done. Um, but I can also see the other side of the argument that would say, you know, let's just have him get reassigned. Let's keep him alive in this universe. He'll just be serving on another vessel and won't make an appearance. I, I think this honors Anton a bit more by acknowledging his lack of presence on this earth means that there's going to be a lack of his presence in the Star Trek world as well. So I'm in the camp that it was a good idea to kill off his character. And I felt that they did it respectfully. 
Yeah, I'm still kind of mixed on it because I was fully expecting them to reassign him. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the way that they do it, you know, he gets uh, killed off during this disastrous event on the away team's mission. Um, and, you know, we don't see his face, but the hairstyle and like it's pretty much meant to be him but i don't know like i guess on one hand it's been seven years so a a lot of time has passed i think if they had done this like even just like two or even three years after it would have felt like a bit much and maybe too soon but maybe this longer gap sort of helps soften it in a way and there is something like later on that i guess also softens the blow but uh in the meantime i do like how i do kind of appreciate how you know it's a catalyst for the crew thinking about like where do they go from here like they they've had people die on away missions like you know the sure uh, I feel kind of bad saying this, the nobodies, the ones that sure. we're not as familiar with, but sure. when it's someone familiar like Chekhov and he's so young, they're like, mm-hmm. man, should we still be doing this? And they're all like reassessing their career choices. So mm-hmm. I, I, can, I can sort of get the decision making. It's it's just still something I'm still getting used to even after all this time since seeing yeah. the movie. Yeah, yeah, I I get that, and and like I said, that there would there were definitely going to be a couple of camps, because you could have definitely written it in such a way where he was just on the rise. He was he was an up and coming officer. He got offered a commission somewhere else, and now we've got this other ensign who is you know he's not Chekhov, and you know maybe they call him by the wrong name or something and the ensign feels bad and they feel bad for calling him the wrong name or something like that but i i think to to drive the character's stories forward you you need to have something that really makes them reconsider why they joined starfleet and i think the loss of a friend the loss of a bridge crew member does that for them so um i i i feel like i feel like that was justifiable yeah, and I will say that I am glad that they didn't go the deep fake route. Right. I feel like that would have been a cheap move, and I appreciate that Star Trek has been bold enough to recast characters, even classic characters. Like, I mean, this whole move, this Calvin series was a recast, and they did it again with Strange New Worlds as well and well i guess spock and pike appeared in discovery before then but like star trek trusts its audience uh to know that these are the characters even if the actors are different now of course there are some fans who will refuse and say oh it's an alternate timeline even if like the paramount plus stuff is still in the prime timeline but i appreciate that they're able to recast while still honoring the characters. Now, recasting Chekhov for this, I don't think would have been the right move. Like, like I said, like I was expecting like reassignment, but the way that they did it here, like all things considered, I'm glad that they didn't use deep fake personally. No, I, I can agree to that. I I think I, I think you you need to 
honor Yelchin for the contributions that he made. And I just don't feel like Deepfake would have done that. So I'm definitely with you there. Right. And like we do see a picture of him during the funeral, which, you know, at, well, at least we see his face in that way. Um, and there's like a nice eulogy and whatnot. You know what but, I appreciated was the fact that they gave him a credit. Yeah, for sure. Like, technically, you didn't have his body in the movie, obviously. But he's he's a character. He's a part of this crew. He's a part of this franchise. He was a part of this movie. Even if it was just a picture, if it was just a hollow that, that made an appearance, you still give credit to Yelchin as an actor for his contribution to the franchise and to the series. And so to um, partially dedicate this movie to him and and to give him an credit, um, you know, I... I, I haven't heard anything, but I feel like the the movie residual or something like that, um, or or even his um, you know whatever contribution they would have made probably went to his family, which was a really good thing too. Like like they didn't just use his face or his likeness arbitrarily. I feel like there had to have been some sort of compensation involved, and so like for them to go to that much depth and that much effort. I think really shows how much he meant to this franchise. And, you know, I love Walter Koenig. I love the guy. He was good as Chekhov in the original series and movies, but I really think Anton Yelchin elevated that character. Like I still love Walter Koenig, but I think Koenig, um, I love him more in his Babylon five villain role, uh, Alfred Bester than I do as him as Chekhov. Uh, so Yelchin's Chekhov, I think is, uh, you could say is my Chekhov if I were to, you know, compare them side by side, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, it does. And I think that's one thing that, that this franchise has allowed for, um, and strange new worlds has done it as well to a certain extent is just providing opportunities um, to manufacture new stories, to create new um, ways of exploring a character that maybe the previous iteration wasn't able to do. And so um, I, I like the new Pike in Strange New Worlds, and I definitely enjoyed Chekhov and even uh, Uhura. Like, there's there's so many things that are are new and it's not a discredit or a disservice necessarily to right. any previous iterations it's just an opportunity to see what else can be explored and they do it with some really fantastic actors and actresses exactly so uh the main thing that happens you know the big change is uh, Chris Hemsworth is back as uh, George Kirk, you know, James Kirk's father. How do you feel about the way that they brought Chris Hemsworth into this and how Kirk and crew react to this with all their suspicions and whatnot? I'll, I'll tell you, it's it's a it's a really tough balance because in in my opinion, this is just me. I'm probably not speaking for all trekkies i feel like it 
dishonors his sacrifice in the first movie's prologue. I know that he's like hopping from another universe. It's not the same exact George Kirk, but to have Chris Hemsworth reappear, it just it cheapens that first movie's prologue for me. It just it doesn't leave that lasting impact. It doesn't make the same difference. And so, you know, after he appeared, like I I, I saw rumors and I saw like possible spoilers before I went and saw the movie. Like I knew that it was a very distinct possibility, but to actually see him kind of frustrated me a little bit because I was like, you're so busy being Thor and being in, in stra- extraction movies and stuff like yeah, and Furiosa. Yeah. Right. Right. And so like, it just, it felt forced. It felt like you needed one more, title big brand name actor to one more chris (laughs) one more chris to help market the film and whatnot and kind of have like a, a surprise reason for his return and whatever i just i it feels very hollywood to me and and i didn't want this is going to sound terrible but i didn't want my new star trek just to feel as hollywood as that felt (laughs) <laughs> so that was that was one issue that I did have with this film and and how integral it was to pretty much everything else. Yeah, I feel like pretty much every Trekkie saw this coming, that this was going to be a Kelvin variation of a mirror universe. Yeah. So to not only bring back George Kirk, but have him be like a a, a more evil version like it does sort of cheapen that prologue in a way. I I can totally see what you're saying. Like, it is an interesting dynamic. You know, Jim really wants to see his dad again, but he knows that this person isn't really his dad. And so he has all this emotional turmoil going on inside of him now. And you also touch on, like, it feeling more Hollywood. I think another fear that people had going into this was that, you know, even though Star Trek was sort of, well, very much ahead of the curve with multiverse stuff, at least on the screen, uh, you know, with comics, it might be a different story, but on the screen, you know, they were ahead on the multiverse game, but uh, bringing this out now with this multiverse storyline, while all these other multiverse movies are happening I can see how like some people might feel fatigued about it, you know. Oh yeah, oh yeah. The the I think the fatigue set in with Multiverse of Madness and just kept getting worse. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, the mirror universes have have been a part of Star Trek since the '60s. I, I'm not discrediting that as a plot point. I just feel like there were a lot of different ways that you could have incorporated that and none of them had to involve Chris Hemsworth. That that's, that's my bottom line. You could have had an alternate Kirk, you know, with split screen technology with two Chris Pines, you, you could have had, you know, just about any other different way that you could have wanted to go. You, you could have even found a way to cross it over and, you know, have, freaking bill shatner make an appearance like there there were so many other things you could have done but 
you went the Chris Hemsworth route, and now we all have to live with it. Right. Yeah, and you mentioned the like alternate Kirk thing. There's a thing that happens in this movie where from far away you see what appears to be uh, Jim Kirk, but with a mustache. And at first, uh, some people were thinking, oh, is this a Mirror Universe version of him? But no, it was his older brother, Sam Kirk, uh, you know, <laughs> still from the Kelvin timeline. But here, like, as he gets closer to the camera, he's played by Chris Evans. So oh, they man. were really desperate getting more Chris's into this. Oh, so many Chris's. So many, like, we need we need to, like, get a cross section and yell bingo or we need to, like, just get a bell and ring it every time we see a Chris's face on screen or something like it's just, it's so many Chris. Did you ever see the, the video on YouTube? I forget who made it too many cooks. Oh yeah. I remember watching that in college. Oh my God. Too I'm, many cooks. <laughs> too many cooks. Such I, a surreal video. <laughs> too many Chris. Too many Chris. Yeah, this truly is Chris's on Infinite Earths. <laughs> oh, I see what you did there. Oh, man, that's really meta. I'm going to have to sit and think about that one for a second. Yeah, but basically Sam Kirk is here to, like, give his little brother some support as they both face this alternate version of their father that they never really got to know. And on that level, I do kind of appreciate the brotherly bond. It, it's just kind of distracting, though, because it's another famous Chris. Like, I almost would have preferred if they did get Chris Pine and just put a mustache on him. You know, echo how William Shatner was basically playing his brother, but dead and with a mustache in that one TOS episode. Well, didn't Leonard Nimoy put on a mustache to be the mirror Spock or something like that at one point? Yeah. Or like a goatee, yeah. Yeah, a goatee, yeah, yeah. So, like, that that was definitely within the realm of possibility. Again, you could have gotten a piece of makeup that went over somebody's upper lip instead of hiring Chris Hemsworth. But what did you do? You hired Chris Hemsworth. <laughs> oh, sorry. I didn't think I would be that fired up over it, but apparently I am. George Kirk, you know, Chris Hemsworth is trying to wreak havoc take over the enterprise and uh weirdly we also see that harry mudd has stowed away on the enterprise he's played by nick frost here you know simon Pegg's buddy what'd you think of his take on harry mudd compared to rain wilson and the original actor you know i can't even remember the original actors harry mudd for the life of me um but I've always seen Harry Mudd. I've always interpreted him to be almost like the Hondo Onaka of Star Trek, if you will. Like, he's a ne'er-do-well, yes. But he's also just kind of a wild card. And he's also just kind of randomly popping up. Um, for For him to be as big of a part of the story as he ended up being was probably a bit much. But... This also felt very much like they were trying to return to their roots. They were trying to go back to what made the original Star Trek so successful and what made it so 
iconic and popular. You've already done Khan. Um, you, you've already done the the story of enlisting in Starfleet. You know, like what else can you do to kind of move the story, quote unquote, forward? You know, if you'll pardon the pun. And yeah, I didn't I didn't think Harry Mudd was like the focal point. I never saw him as the fulcrum. <laughs> But to see him as like the intermediary for the Romulans, that was pretty cool. And it stands to reason that a George Kirk who hails from a mirror universe where there is an empire, it stands to reason that he would be trying to make contact with whatever the closest thing that resembles a civilized empire would be in this world. We have explored the Klingons in this timeline. We have... Uh, explored, you know, kind of outcast Romulans who were on like an oil tanker of a ship that were seeking revenge. Um, But to have like the civilized cloaking device Romulan star empire find themselves allied with an empirical based George Kirk, that was an interesting storyline because I've, I've always been fascinated with like the Tal Shiar. I've always been fascinated with um, just the, the, the contrast between Romulans and Vulcans. And so um, having the two of them link up through an intermediary, like Harry mud, it eventually makes sense, but it takes a while to get there. Yeah, like for something with forward in the title, they do spend a bit of time trying to go back to their roots, maybe a bit too much. But, you know, with this alliance, there's some interesting stuff that goes on. And there's a point where some of the crew of the Enterprise gets stranded on this alien planet that looks like a 1920s earth but with like aliens so again another throwback to the original series in a way yep. but with with the like 1920s gangster culture here this is another opportunity for tarantino to flex his style and oh yeah oh yeah this was definitely a tarantino directed sequence for sure it's 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 interesting to to look at the possibility of of like the different costumes but also how to incorporate prosthetics into it because you you need to make everybody look like a 20s gangster but you also need to know who the bad guys are and so to to have like just the tiniest pointy ears you know what i mean yeah. like it's it's not those obvious over the top look like christmas elves type of pointy ears it's like it's more curved with just a a tiny inflection you really have to be watching to notice their appearance and when they appear it actually took a second viewing for me to recognize that they were basically there from the time the landing party arrived and were kind of almost guiding them towards the saloon so that they could be ambushed so the 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 depth that Tarantino goes to with this sequence is actually pretty impressive, but it's definitely not something that you notice on first watch. And I kind of like that about a Star Trek film. Like 
it has some depth. It has some some gore. Um, it it has some elements that you really didn't have in the previous films, and that's that is a part of what helps it move forward. I think is just how different the the storytelling model is from everything else, and yet at the same time still feels like classic Trek. I think that's how they strike the balance is. They are telling the story in a different way from the other three films, but they are also telling a story that is familiar. So it's like different and yet also kind of the same. Yeah, and something that um, well, has also been brought up earlier in the movie, like uh, Jim Kirk is reflecting on how they lost Carol Marcus a couple years prior. You know, her absence and beyond was never really explained. And we come to find out that uh, she got lost in space because of some anomaly and they presumed that she was dead. But apparently, like, it was a wormhole that brought her to this planet here, this uh, gangster-type setting. So, like, what'd you think of their reunion with her in this well, again, I think it harkens back to character decision making and 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 Kirk like has a decision to make regarding his career and and what he wants to do with his life moving forward. I think he probably much like, you know, Bill Shatner's Kirk saw an opportunity for a future with her and then that opportunity was lost. And so my interpretation was, you know, Pines Kirk is looking at this going am I really going to miss out on another chance to be with this woman? Am I really going to stay the captain of the enterprise? And it means missing out on reuniting with this woman more fully and, and being there for her as we, you know, try to negotiate bringing her back home. Um, there's definitely a, a lot of, of character depth that goes on in, in their reunion and a lot of subtext that goes on. Um, but, I was also just kind of surprised to see her back because I didn't really miss her in beyond. I'm sorry. I, I didn't, but I guess, uh, I mean, I missed her, but mainly because I like Alice Eve. Yeah, that's, that's very fair. I, I personally didn't miss her, but I like, like yourself, there are probably other people who did miss her. And so um, it didn't necessarily feel forced to bring her back. But I'm also looking at this going, I feel like Kirk has enough weighing on his shoulders that you didn't need to necessarily like have to throw a love interest his way. And yet you did. So like I get it, but I also don't get it kind of on the fence, but it's good for his character development. So I'm not going to like complain about it. Yeah. And he does think about how, you know, he lost his father, um, who was, you know, it was a heroic sacrifice, but it was like while he was in that service of Starfleet. And so, like, Jim is thinking about that and how if he ever has children with someone, he wants to be there for the children. I mean, we know the tragic fate that befalls his son in the prime timeline. So uh, this was kind of interesting because it's like could things turn out differently like what's going to happen here you know well but i think that's the other thing too that that i'm not i'm not certain about is 
he's already struggling with like trying to connect with this person who's not his dad, but also like trying to stop him from you know destroying Starfleet. And then on the other end of the spectrum, he is trying to to deal with like his own personal struggles. Like, does he feel responsible for the fate of the universe because he needs to stop this person who looks like his dad? Or is he responsible to himself and starting relationships and forging a path that gives him the opportunity to live his life rather than living a life of Starfleet? There's a lot going on with Kirk that is it, it, it's happening on two or three different fronts. He's thinking about, you know, family. He's thinking about career. He's also thinking about his dad or, you know, his non-dad. Um, Chris Pine really had to flex the acting muscles a little bit to be able to keep up with all of these different storylines. Yeah, like there's so much going on that it's I kind of do get why they made it almost three hours. But again, like some of the self-reflecting moments earlier in the movie could have been trimmed down a bit. Like I feel like in some instances there is more tell telling than showing, you know, like There needs to be a balance with that sort of thing. Yes, I would I would agree to that. I, I think there's a lot more talking about your situation rather than living it out. And I guess in some cases that's true to life because people do a lot of talking. Um, but I wasn't really expecting this to like have a mini episode of Cheers where everybody's just talking about life at the bar. <laughs> yeah, I mean... Morn, you probably already know this on Deep Space Nine. Yeah, Morn is like his name is an anagram of Norm from of Cheers. Norm from Cheers. Oh yeah, oh yeah. You're you're talking you're talking to a deep dive Trekkie who's also watched a lot of old TV shows. So that is that is one trivia I'm I'm quite familiar with. Yeah. <laughs> um. So what what do you think of the way that this all comes to a climax like did it work for you or was it like was your reaction you know at the end of the day i think it does work for me as much as i dislike the notion of chris hemsworth being the quote-unquote antagonist um i i love a good space battle i love a good space battle and this one not only had like like really well thought out and really well choreographed space fight scenes, but it incorporated landing parties. It it incorporated using ground troops and it really gave you an idea for why the neutral zone was established in the first place. And that's something that I've always been curious about is, you know, the violation of the neutral zones and why it's been so sacred, even in the TOS series. Um, like, what is it about the the war that made people want to honor the neutral zone on both sides? What was so tragic about it? And at the end of the day, humans and Romulans in this point in time do not like each other. Like, there is almost some racist like racial subtext about humans hating Romulans and vice versa. The emotions are still very raw apparently from the establishment of this neutral zone where, you know, current soldiers are trying to 
avenge the loss of their fathers or their cousins or or their uncles, what have you. And it's still very personal. And you can feel that in the way that the shots are being fired, um, the, the way that they kind of hone in on some of the torpedo specialists and some of the um, the targeting analysts. Like, they are as precise and pristine as they can be because they have motive. They have a reason to be that precise. They have a reason to be that angry at humans or or vice versa. And so to have this type of fight be rooted almost in racism was very, very compelling and very different from what we had seen when it comes to Romulans versus humans. So I I did like that. I liked that Hemsworth met his demise, but I think I really, really like the approach that they took to humans versus Romulans and why this neutral zone is so important. Yeah, and I know that there were a few fans here and there who were like, oh, they went too political with this one, and I'm just like, shut up. This is how Trek has always been. Our Trek's always been political. <laughs> <laughs> it's never not been. Yeah, like, even the demise of evil George Kirk, it still brings a tear to Chris Pine, Jim Kirk's eyes, and Sam Kirk as well, because even though this isn't their father they're still sad that like well basically the fact that they met this version of their father and it's uh, like seeing their own father or someone who looks like him die before their eyes so you know they're definitely going to need a lot of therapy after all this oh yeah oh yeah you you need a you need a ship's counselor that's that's the this is this is where they kind of spark the idea of, yeah. having, of having a counselor aboard the enterprise. And then like, you know, you, you know that that's like a subtle nod to counselor Troy in, in the next generation. It's like, Oh, that's why we have a ship's counselor because people suffer a ton of PTSD and, and other trauma from the lives that they live uh, in service to Starfleet. And, uh, I think there's no better poster boy for that than Jim Kirk. And so to uh, to just exacerbate that further, to to drive that point home even more um, was no surprise. But again, the acting chops of Chris Pine, he he did it so, so well where, you know, he basically knew what had to be done and hated himself doing it. He hated doing it the whole time. But he still made sure that the, you know, that Starfleet was safe, that the neutral zone was preserved. Like he had to do all of these things, but it came at the expense of the guy who looked like his father. So that that is some great almost Game of Thrones level storytelling. So I, I definitely saw elements of Clarkson and Shackman in that sequence for sure. Yeah, for sure. So, yeah, we get the demise of George Kirk and there's a bit of, you know, everyone just coming to grips with what's just happened and sort of doing the cleanup, the aftermath of it all. And they're sort of reflecting on how this truly is the end of the five year mission. And 
it's kind of open-ended like what each of them is going to decide once they get back home but this next bit that happens uh, i'm i'm still kind of on the fence about it but basically there's a q that shows up and this is the child of q and lady q from voyager and he basically shows them what uh some of the like prime timeline versions of some of them uh end up doing like basically showing them like a vision of what happens and it kind of comforts them to see an older version of Chekhov who was able to live a full life and we even get a glimpse of Nichelle Nichols as like a little tribute to her since she passed away last year so on one hand I thought it was a touching tribute but on the other hand I can see how it might feel forced like putting it in this movie especially like at the end of everything yeah because when you do something like that it almost feels like you're wrapping things up it it almost feels like you are saying we're done and i was really really hoping that they wouldn't be done the tonality of this the cinematography of this the, the 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 directing the direction that it took i was really really hoping that the ending would kind of give us this open-ended perspective of you know what these characters might want to do but by bringing in a cue you you throw in something that's different from from their timeline like i don't think there's any record of a Q interacting with Kirk or anybody else. And so like Well, just in like maybe the Calvin Timeline comics, but the canonicity of that is debatable, I guess you could say. It's it's dubious at best just because of what kind of of fans they're appealing to. Right. And, and so I just I, I'm with you. It 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 was an it was a touching tribute and I definitely heard a couple of awes in the theater. But I just didn't know if that was how I personally would have wrapped up the film because it it makes you feel like there isn't going to be a fifth. And so, like, what are they going to do to... I wouldn't call it backpedal necessarily, but how do you come away from that? And if you end up making a fifth, how do you, like, take that as the final piece of the last movie and use it to help tell the next story does that make sense yeah and what also makes it kind of awkward as well is they show uh chris pike who is able to live a bit longer and so we see strange new worlds pike in this vision and it basically you know even if it was intended to be heartwarming it felt like an ad to me now don't get me wrong i ended up watching uh, Strange New Worlds season two and have been really loving it but I don't know like the cynic in me was still kind of like that that's just an ad right there if that makes sense yeah and I mean there have been plenty of times where Star Trek is almost self-referential and that's just that's part of the game that's part of what Star Trek is and what it does but when when you've got creatives like Quentin Tarantino attached to the project, I guess I just thought it would have been a little more subtle. 
Yeah. Well, I guess it's better that they put it at the end of the movie rather than forcing it somewhere in the middle. So I guess that's something. I guess. I guess. I just... I would have hoped that they would have landed the plane or landed the shuttle a little bit better. It, it, it does feel a little forced and it feels a little choppy. And honestly, it probably affects my rating a little bit. I, I really loved the fight sequence with the Romulans. And I thought that would have been a cool way to kind of, you know, bring things to a close. But when you throw in that little, almost an epilogue at the end, it's just, it's like, okay, when do the credits actually roll? And then they roll. And so I, I probably do need to end up taking a little bit off for, for, for pacing and, and story selection when it comes to that sequence. But as a whole, I think this is a, a really solid film and it does move the characters forward because it's the end of their five-year mission. And so, you know, it's appropriate that that's what this movie would be titled. Yeah, and they even do the, you know, they end it with a space, a Final Frontier monologue and yep. modify it a little bit so that it mentions the end of the five-year mission, but to go forward and boldly go where no one has gone before. So I, 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 I still, whenever I hear any variation of that, I tend to still do a fist bump, you know, and... You know, the music, we David talk about the music, how, you know, it felt like coming home to this timeline with a do, 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 do. But I, I feel like there are also some like new things. And so maybe there is even some like newer type of score music than storytelling, you could argue. Um, and I do appreciate that there was no post credit scene to this. So. In a way, it doesn't feel as Hollywood. Yeah, I mean, there's so many, so so many Hollywood movies. I'm I'm glad that some of the, there there that some films and some franchises are moving away from it, and I'm glad that this one was one of them. Um, I I forgot I straight up forgot to look. Was Giacchino the composer for this one as well, or did they get somebody else? Yeah, I'm, it was him for this one. Yeah. Yeah, Giacchino has has always been able to strike a balance between what what uh, reminds you of a franchise and, and sounds like it, but also takes it in a different direction. I personally loved his composition for Rogue One. I thought he oh, did yeah. a fantastic job with Rogue One because it sounded like Star Wars, but it was new themes. And I think he does that exceptionally well with Star Trek as well. You hear elements and you hear pieces and instruments that are very very reminiscent of TOS and TNG and yet he finds a way to take those those brass instruments and and finds a way to in, incorporate other pieces of the orchestra around it that just makes it sound new and exciting but at the same time, it still very much sounds like Star Trek. He strikes that balance so incredibly well. Yeah, and I mean, with Rogue One, uh, just a side tangent, like, yeah, there are those really suspenseful music moments that really feed into the battle, but there's also the slower moments. Like, w whenever I get to that part where 
Jin is doing her speech at the rebel base and trying to get everyone to unite and go to Scarif. Like you hear the theme that goes do 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 and for whatever reason like I almost tear up during that moment because it's a desperate attempt for Jin to get everyone to listen and to unite and fight against evil. And that piece of music is so subtle, but it just fits the moment so well. So, you know, can't say enough good things about Giacchino, you know? Absolutely. He he is up there with John Williams and Hans Zimmer as some of the greatest composers of our generation, I feel like. Yeah, I agree. So what's your final thoughts and score out of 10, a unit of measurement for that score for Star Trek Forward? You know, I, I hate to do um, a little bit of a, of a shameless plug, but I'm also not <laughs> ashamed of it. Um, I'm part of, an, of a, another podcast now uh, over at Phantom Empire that's called Flix Busters. And uh, we try to determine whether a film is a flick or a bust. And we have four different criteria that we use for uh, measuring the point totals. And uh, it's 25 possible points for each one. One of them is creativity, one is quality, one is sound, and then the other one is the enjoyment factor. Um, So with creativity, it has to do with the story, the writing, the characters, character development, et cetera. I did like the depth that they went to with a lot of these characters. Uh, but like I said, I didn't care for how long it took to get there sometimes. And I also didn't really care for um, Chris Hemsworth being like the villain. So I'd probably give it like an 18 out of 25 for creativity. Um, it's a very well-made film, though. Um, the the directing, the acting, the the cinematography, the... So, so many of those types of components are, are really well made. So it's probably like a 22 out of 25 on that end. Um, sound, we were just talking about the music. That's probably like another 20 out of 25. Um, I, I really liked Giacchino's score, but there were some other pieces of sound and sound design. I, I wish we'd had a little more Boatswain's whistle. I wish we had had a little bit more of the clacking of boots in the hallway during battle sequences, you know, some little things like that, that kind of pile up. And then uh, the enjoyment factor, just out of a possible 25 points, how much did I enjoy this? I would probably say uh, probably in the 20 to 21 range, I'll give it a 21 cause it's a fun film. Um, so overall it would probably looking at it 18, 22, 20 and 21. Uh, yeah, that's pretty accurate to what I was thinking. I was thinking an eight out of 10, but with that score, it would be an 81 out of a hundred. So, um, I give it, I give it an 81%. All right. And what's your unit of measurement, like an object related to the movie for that score? Um, I forgot that we do that. It's been so long since I've been on, (laughs) um, you know what? I will probably use. Oh, man. Okay, so in um, in the hospital, what do they what do they use to? I'm, I'm thinking of that of that triage hospital that Bones is in. Um, he's injecting them with different CCs of different medications. It's a hypo spray, right? Is that what they call yeah. It? 
Okay. Yeah. Eight, 81 out of 100 triage hospital hypo sprays. Nice. Yeah, and I think I pretty much have the same score. Um, I'm still doing it out of 10 because I can't, I don't have the bandwidth to do the out of 25 bit right now. But, <laughs> That's fair. But yeah, like I enjoyed this enough. I, I definitely still prefer the 2009 movie out of these four Kelvin movies. Um, but I think I enjoyed this more than Into Darkness and Beyond. So I'm good. And again, like, you know, the fan service moments are still it's still a debatable kind of a sore point. I do like, though, that in the end credits, they dedicated to Anton Yelchin and to Nichelle Nichols. So that's nice. Um, so I'm going to give Star Trek forward eight out of ten planets. The Star Trek planets. <laughs> Hey, it's a planet score. Yeah, see what I did there? <laughs> that's what we do on IPC. Yeah, I see yeah. what you did there. <laughs> uh, it's a great segue to remind people to tune into our monthly episodes of the IPC podcast whenever uh, we end up publishing them. We're working on getting an episode put together, but I'm glad that uh, I was able to pop in for this one. Thanks again for having me, man. Yeah, it's always great to have you. And yeah, I'll include the links to ipc um in the show notes so that's on podbean and mixler and uh like some other platforms and fandom empire is on youtube um feel, feel free to add on to like what i just said in case i'm forgetting anything oh, that's pretty much it um i also do a lot of sports broadcasting on my personal page so uh, if you're interested in hearing me talk a little bit faster and a little bit louder and a little bit about sports then you can uh, follow me on my personal socials at the username Zach the Voice. It's the same across all platforms: Facebook, uh, X, Twitter, whatever you call it, Instagram, Threads, <laughs> TikTok. Same username on all those places. So yeah, just find at Zach the Voice to find out what's happening next. Yeah, man, I still can't believe it's called X. That's like one of the stupidest things to ever happen. It is. You would think that that would only happen in one universe, but apparently it's happening everywhere. Yeah. But one thing I'm excited about is the Star Trek book club I'm part of. The next book we're going to talk about is Planet X, which is a Star Trek X-Men crossover. So that'll oh, that be fun. Sounds, that sounds fun. Have y'all ever uh, read anything from the Typhon Pack series? Um... I'm not sure if the book club has. I only joined them. Like, it's an online book club. Uh, LA Away Team is the Facebook group. Um, cool. But uh, I joined like two years ago. And since I've been in the book club, like, it's a monthly thing, they haven't read any Typhon Pact. But on my own, I've been steadily making my way through the post Nemesis books. So. That includes like the TNG stuff that's after Nemesis, the Voyager yep. relaunch stuff, yep. the Titan novels. Uh, so yep. I'm not at Typhon Pact yet. Uh, I, I just read the Department of Temporal Investigations, the first book of that, if you can okay. believe it. So like some of them are hit and miss, like some are really good. Some are middle of the road. Some are not that enjoyable to me, but I'm steadily making my way to typhon pact like i think the typhon pact itself has happened uh in 
a couple of the stories I've read. I just haven't read that series title itself yet, but I'm getting there. I, I read a couple of books a couple of years ago, and then life happened, and I stopped with my with my uh, recreational reading. But I've got most of the series on paperback, and so if I ever do end up picking up a book again, <laughs> it'll it'll probably be one of those because it's it's a very interesting story with some very familiar characters, and it's not entirely implausible what the what kind of stories they're trying to tell. Some of them like an X-Men crossover can feel maybe a little far-fetched at times, but these feel very true to form, if that makes sense. Yeah, like some of them do feel like they would happen after uh, Nemesis. Uh, some of it doesn't fit with the uh, Paramount Plus stuff, but again, like Star Trek has multiple timelines and universes, so it still feels like authentic, like you said, you know? Yep. Very true. Very, very true. Right. And um, oh, before we sign off, did you want to give like your overall thoughts on Stranger World season two so far? Uh, yeah, I I think the the development of the characters is one of my favorite things about this show is you, you, you get to learn about characters like Chapel and Mbenga. You, you get to see some of the PTSD and how people handle it uh, from the Klingon war. And I, I think the, the antics that they incorporate as well is what helps balance the show out so well. I have yet to see the musical episode, but I really, really enjoyed the, the episode that involved, I think it was a transporter malfunction and um, Spock became 100% human instead of 50% human. Yeah, and that was I, such a fun episode. I was, was like surprised I couldn't think of any previous instance that that happened with Spock. It was so interesting, and it was such a great exploration of his character, of his relationships with people, um, with how uh, he would approach different uh, Vulcan rituals from a human point of view. Just Great, great storytelling, great comedy, very heartwarming. Um, and, and that's a lot of those things that this show is capable of doing. And so um, out of out of all the new Trek that we've been experiencing, I think I've been, been enjoying Strange New Worlds the most. It feels the most like classic Trek while also still feeling very modern and fun. Yeah, and... You mentioned the musical episode that still has yet to air as of when we're recording this, but I'm excited for it. You know, we've had singing in Star Trek before, you know, Vic Fontaine, uh, sure. Uhura herself sang in the original series, but a full on musical episode. It's surprising we haven't really had one in Trek before. And I admit last week I was kind of a little bit disappointed because I thought the musical episode would be last week, but then we got a really excellent story of like what Mabanga and Chapel witnessed during the war against the Klingons. And it was a great episode. So like you said, they do a good job balancing the heavy stuff and the lighthearted stuff. They really do. They really do. And I'm, I'm bummed. It takes so long between seasons because those, those 10 weeks that we do get stuff, it's it's always fun to watch. So I'm I'm gonna 
I'm going to ride with it and roll with it and enjoy it for as long as we've got it. But I, I'm really, they, they haven't announced a season three, have they? Or did they before even season two launched? Uh, yeah, season three is confirmed. Although I think in that other universe where a strike is happening, it's going to be a little bit delayed. Yeah, that makes sense. Sucks for them, but I'm just glad that it's happening. Yeah. Because, like I said, I, I know they're they're getting ready to wrap up uh, Discovery. I, I feel like Strange New Worlds has the potential to go on for, for several seasons. Yeah, I mean, with the older... Uh like the 90s uh well 80s 90s trek shows uh seven seasons kind of became the standard and then enterprise got canceled prematurely um five seasons feels like in in general like to me feels like a good end point to shoot for you know babylon five did that well um breaking bad Better Call Saul did go six seasons and they made it work. So I'll give it that. So I guess it's not too much of a stretch to go beyond five and still be good. But I think on average, that's, I don't know, that's kind of the frame of mind I'm of. But if they can keep it good, then bring it on. Yeah, I'm I'm with you. I, I think it has a lot of potential for more seasons. I think they've got a lot of adventures still left to be told, a lot of character development still left to do. So um, I'm really hoping that it gets, I, I guess, at least two more seasons. I would, I would, I would love to see this be like the midway point where like we're only halfway into developing these characters, just wait and see how much more we're going to flesh it out. So that's, that's selfishly what I'm hoping for. But in the meantime, I'm just going to enjoy what we've got. Yeah, for sure. Plenty of Trek to go around. So yeah, thanks for joining me again, and I'll include my plugs in the edit like I normally do. And uh, without further delay, have a good day. Okay, so that's the end of the discussion, but we still got some segments to cover. All right, so before getting into Strange New Worlds Season 2, I just want to mention the plugs again, so... Uh, Zach, of course, mentioned that he's on IPC, and I see that there's an episode out that he and his wife Edna did about Barbenheimer. So, hey, how's that for Barbecue Watch? And, you know, again, happy early birthday to Zach, and also happy birthday to Jonathan Frakes. Uh, it's his birthday as this episode comes out uh you know Jonathan Frakes played Will Riker on Star Trek and for my plugs I recently appeared on Mr. Multiverse's Requalizers podcast that he has on his Patreon we talked about our ideas for another requel to the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre um Hey, Trexas Chainsaw Massacre. I wonder if there's something to that. Um, so, and we're now around that time of the 50th anniversary of the in-universe date of when that takes place. So it was a fun half-hour discussion. Uh, something I think I forgot to mention in the discussion was that old man Leatherface, like, in our era, like, doesn't really make sense to me if you're going for something realistic. But, yeah, you can go to his Patreon and check out that discussion if you'd like. 
And I'm also going to be on my friend Jesse's podcast question, possible answer sometime soon. We had the idea to talk about accepted, but we might also talk about some other things like some DC related things from the sound of it. So subscribe to that podcast and uh, keep an eye out for what we talk about. And uh, also uh, check out decorativevegetable.com and that whole network of podcasts. I still don't think the finale for Triple Play, that movie trilogy podcast, um, I, I still don't think the finale that I guessed it on is out yet, but still check out that website, decorativevegetable.com. There's a Doctor Who podcast, a classic sci-fi podcast, a Blake 7 podcast. So yeah, and the movie trilogy one I mentioned. So very great discussions on there. Lots of fun. As for my plugs, you know, stevenshinder.com, at stevenshinder on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, Steven Schinder Storytelling on Facebook. And... I'm also at Steven Schinder on threads, um, but, uh, you know, it feels like not much is going on there, so. And again, both my novels, Lemons of McRain, Trespassing Through Visages, are both part of the Standalones and Stepping Stones series. You can find them on Amazon. So, you know, look in the show notes for all of these links. Also, check out Yes Shift, a podcast slash vlog I do with my dad. We interviewed Royna Stolt from the Flower Kings, who was also on one of my favorite albums ever, the Anderson Stolt album, Invention of Knowledge, so that's cool. You can also email delayedreplaypodcast at gmail.com. Let us know your thoughts on Star franchises. So it looks like Zach really enjoyed the musical episode of Star Trek Strange New Worlds, and I did as well. Um, I'm going to read his thoughts in a moment, but first I want to read the overall thoughts on Strange New Worlds Season 2 from my friend Liana Ahmed, who, you know, due to scheduling conflicts, couldn't be on this episode. And people who've listened to older episodes of Delayed Replay may remember back when I mentioned here and there a Star Trek podcast we used to do. And we don't do it anymore because, you know, there's some stuff that came up in both of our lives and just a variety of factors. Um, Yeah, that happened in both universes. But uh, we really enjoyed talking Star Trek. I have those episodes on a hard drive, uh, so they exist there at least. They might still be on Facebook. I haven't really checked recently. But the point is, Liana Ahmed, huge Star Trek fan, and uh, this is what she had to say, you know, general thoughts on Stranger Worlds Season 2. Without any spoilers, uh, these are her thoughts. Many times, the sophomore season of any Star Trek series tends to be a low point. The writers are still clinging to whatever they thought made the first season work so great even if it's played out. Strange New Worlds learned the lesson. I was impressed overall with the amount of creative chances taken within this season. There are a few episodes I like less and consider to be subpar. 
However, this season will be forever remembered for many great things. We were introduced to Paul Wesley as the new face of James Kirk in Season 1. We really got to see him in action now. Season 2 gave us the unprecedented crossover with Lower Decks. Most importantly, Subspace Rhapsody, a Star Trek musical episode, exists now. The first episode of the series was the weakest. While we got to see some amazing action sequences, we also defied the laws of physics beyond science fiction comprehension with a Star Wars-esque unprotected flight through space. While the second episode of the series falls in the footsteps of a measure of a man from TNG, it fell short. After watching these two episodes, I was concerned for the season. I now stand happily corrected because the rest of the season was amazing. I especially loved the season-ending cliffhanger. I am so happy we are no longer doing the bad guy of the season style episodes where there are little to no stakes and you know how it's going to end. We are going to the storytelling for which Star Trek is known. I can't wait for season 3. So yeah, I know I said there are no spoilers. There are like a couple little things there, but they felt kind of broad, so I didn't think they were really spoilery. But yeah, Liana is really into the show, and I'm glad to see she's also looking forward to season three. Um, now, with the musical episode, this, this for me, you know, I don't stay up late to watch streaming show uh, episodes when they premiere anymore, you know, at midnight uh, on the Pacific Coast. Like, I don't do that anymore with Star Wars, really, or with Marvel or uh, DC. Like, or I just get, like, really tired. So this, for the first time in a long time, was the first Star Trek episode that I decided to power through and stay up late to watch when it premiered. Because, you know, I'm getting to a point where I get super tired and just need to get some sleep and wait until morning when I feel like I'll enjoy it more. But for the musical episode Subspace Rhapsody, I powered through. I watched the whole episode when it came out that night, and I was blown away. I loved the music. The songs were incredible. The cast, the characters seemed to be having a lot of fun. And so, yeah, I was just really, really into this. And I've talked to uh, friends in the LA Away team uh, online book club uh, that I mentioned in the episode, and they really enjoyed the season as well. Um, They mentioned that at Star Trek Las Vegas, the fan convention, there was this panel where Zachary Quinto and Ethan Peck talked about how they prepared to for the role of Spock and they were kind of like whoa that's how I prepared to do it too so it's kind of funny how they're basically kindred spirits and you know they're both great as Spock so it sounds like that convention was a really good time now as for Zach's thoughts on Subspace Rhapsody I'm just gonna read his tweets here, um, which uh, I know it's x.com now, which makes this even weirder to say tweet, but it, it basically here's what he said. Let me tell you why, and this is kind of a spoiler for the musical episode, so I'd suggest watching that first and then hearing this. Let me tell you why I'm the X is one of the best things to happen to Spock's character. 
Since the original series, the movies, even in the Kelvin films, Spock's always been unable to grip with his emotions. So often, words fail. So what do you use when words fail? Song. In Those Old Scientists, we see Spock from the standpoint of the viewer thanks to a very meta assignment from Boimler. Spock's smiling, happy, and shouldn't be. Chapel appears upset at the news first, but here we quickly see career was always a priority for her. Spock essentially gave up to praying for Chapel, and now he's the one being given up. This not only sets a stage for her and Corby, but also helps him relate to the one he jilted, and explains his solitary nature in other series. Now to the song itself. Spock uses common Vulcan terms when he speaks, saying phrases like I am hurt, but when he breaks into song, he uses a total of 14 contractions, very uncommon for a Vulcan, and a clever writing prose to show how emotionally vulnerable he is. I watched dozens if not hundreds of musicals growing up. The writing of this song is next level. I solved for why in my computation, but missed vital information, the variable so devastating, I'm the X. Math, intellect, pain, killer baritone, finally, he can express himself. So yeah, Uhura might have saved the day, but in my opinion, one of Strange New World's greatest character triumphs, this particular episode is seeing Spock's pain, how he processes, and how we may see him on the other side of this. Thanks for coming to my TED Talk, hashtag Star Trek. <laughs> so yeah, overall, a very satisfying season, I would say, and my friends would say from the sounds of it. So yeah, loving Star Trek, and uh, also I feel like I should mention that in any universe where Prodigy is halted or doesn't have a home for another season, like, the higher-ups should, uh, like, you know, higher-ups, networks, whatever, should give it a home and have it continue because it's a great show, you know, it, probably in any universe, you know. Also makes for a nice gateway for younger audiences to get into Star Trek. So, yeah, definitely pro-prodigy here. And um, I'm also pro Lower Decks as well. You know, the crossover, I really loved it. It was kind of meta and it really worked. So yeah, I really enjoyed this uh, second season of Stranger Worlds. But all that being said, let's get on to Babylon 5. So first, non-spoiler stuff. So Babylon 5, I got into it like... 20 maybe 2013 at the earliest I definitely finished it in 2014 probably watched the bulk of it that year um I found out about it because I uh submitted an essay about why I enjoy writing or being a writer and I won an assist from J Michael Strzinski and his uh people uh, collaborators I'm not sure what the right term is but yeah, and that was before I went into college. And, you know, af after I won that, I was told about the stuff he's worked on. And Babylon 5 was 
one of them and this was the first time I ever heard of the show so I was renting the DVDs from Netflix back when uh, they mailed DVDs like yeah I guess what we're learning on this episode is it all goes back to Netflix you know Uh, so I was watching that as I was getting into all these other sci-fi shows you know I did a watch through of Doctor Who uh, in the latter part of 2013 uh, got into Farscape and Quantum Leap the year after and finished Star Trek, um, all the televised Star Trek that was available um, sometime in 2014. So this was such a great spot for me in my life, like getting into all these different sci-fi series and franchises. And Babylon 5 had some of the things I loved about Star Wars and some of the things I loved about Star Trek it was like the best of both worlds, but while being its own unique thing. Now, obviously, there's the accounts of how, like, you can read about this in Strzinski's autobiography, Becoming Superman. I actually met him at a book signing for that back in 2019. Um, it was pretty close to my birthday from what I remember. It, it's a great book, and th- there's an account of how the premise for Babylon 5, while it was being pitched, may have been reworked by Paramount. And so that's why you see some similarities with Deep Space Nine and Babylon 5. And and in the end, they felt different enough overall. But overall, Babylon 5, I ended up preferring a bit. Like, Babylon 5 ended up being my favorite sci-fi show of all time. It's just a really tightly written five-season arc. And even when there had to be casting changes, like a cast member who was a main character in the first season had to leave due to health reasons. And then they brought in a new main character. And when you think about that on paper, that shouldn't work. But it ended up working. And they brought back the original main character, you know, Jeffrey Sinclair, um, and John Sheridan became the new main character. Um, and Sinclair's arc does get resolved. And it's really great. But yeah, Sheridan and the other characters like Delenn, Jakar, Londo, I could go on and on. They were just so colorful and they change over time. Some people you begin the series not liking so much and then end up really liking them toward the end. And perhaps vice versa. And it's such a masterclass in writing, and it's part of why I think five seasons really should be the standard for, like, I feel like going beyond five, you know, sometimes it can be justified, but uh, I can think of a few shows where it feels like they meant to stop at five, or they could have stopped at five and it would have been fine, but... Yeah, I love the series. I've probably gone through it three times from what I remember. I watched it again when it was on a site uh, called Go7, I think it was. And I think that went down under. Um, Like, it was an official site, and then, yeah. And then later on when it was on Max. And uh, now I've I've pre-ordered the complete series now that it's coming out all on Blu-ray in December, and I'm really 
pleased with that. It's, this is my first time ever buying a TV series, really. And uh, ba buying Babylon 5 The Road Home, the new animated movie, was my first time buying a movie for myself on physical media since perhaps Terminator Salvation. Uh, funny enough, Strzinski wrote a conclusion to that via a comic series called Terminator Salvation, The Final Battle. It was pretty good. But yeah, I enjoyed the Babylon 5 series, uh, watched the movies and the spinoffs. Uh, Crusade didn't continue after one season, unfortunately, and Legend of the Rangers, you know, was a pilot and didn't continue, but maybe there are some universes where they do, who knows. Um, when it comes to the movies, I don't, like, most of them I don't enjoy as much as a show. Like, they're fine, but the prequel movie uh the beginning i think is very good and the gathering is definitely essential watching like the pilot movie so going into babylon 5 the road home i wasn't really sure what to expect i think i definitely enjoy it more than most of the babylon 5 movies but maybe slightly below in the beginning or a bit below that um so yeah, I'm glad I bought it. It and it has commentary and a special feature called Babylon Five Forever. I think it's called. Um, if I get that wrong, I'll put it in the show notes. So I'm glad I bought it. I watched it. The animation feels reminiscent of such shows as Star Wars Resistance and The Dragon Prince, and I'm sure you can name a lot of other shows that look like that. But those are kind of like where my mind went first. Um, I'd also like to add that with the animated movie, you know, the effects in the original show where there's a CGI and it looks like a video game and it didn't bother me because the storytelling was so good. But with the animated movie, you don't really have that problem. Like it just all looks really good. And, you know, this is in the trailer, so it's not a spoiler, but it delves into the multiverse, funny enough. Like on this delayed replay episode, we were talking about the multiverse trend. And I'm really curious, like when exactly did the idea for this story come about? Like how far along was the multiverse trend that we're so inundated with now? But... It was an interesting watch. You get to see... Uh, well, I guess we're going to spoilers now for the movie. I'll, I'll give my... Uh, I, I'd say my overall score is a 7.5 out of 10 uh, Zathras or Zathrases. Um, like, it's it's fine. It Maybe a little bit more than fine. You know, it's... It takes John Sheridan to different timelines you know different realities so knowing that that was going to be the premise I kind of felt like it was going to be pretty much what I expected and I feel like it was overall uh, but there is a nice theme of how across all realities love is the most powerful thing and you know that's something that's touched upon in everything everywhere all at once as well and seeing the different versions of the familiar characters, we even got to see Sinclair again. And 
I feel like we maybe found out a bit too much about Zathras. Um, you know, all the Zathras clones and stuff. Like, it was interesting. Um, he did break the fourth wall at one point when Sheridan is like, we're lost in time and lost in, and he cuts him off before he can say lost in space. And Zathras is like, even now, copyright is an issue. And, like, that really took me out of the movie. Um, even though it's animated, it feels... It feels like it has the grounded feel of Babylon 5, but also not as grounded because you fling Sheridan across all these different realities. Uh, is a fun journey, I guess, but the ending really has me wondering, like, what what's next? Because we're introduced to a reality that's kind of different and is earlier in these characters... Uh, journeys but in a different timeline and they look pretty much the same like they're look like the same actor character models so I don't think this timeline that they sort of linger on at the end is supposed to be the timeline that will be explored in the CW reboot um or you know I'm Steven of that other universe, I don't know if I clarified that. Maybe it's already started in the delayed replay universe. I don't know. There's just so much to keep track of. Um, but yeah, I, I don't think it's necessarily directly leading into the CW reboot show, which I'm very excited to see what goes down with that. Like, how does it change up the story while also maintaining the core of Babylon 5? Uh, but I do think maybe this ending sets up another reboot timeline that could be explored in animated movies if there are further animated movies. I guess I'll depend on how much this one sells. So I'm curious to see what Warner Brothers ends up deciding, uh, what, you know, the impact on the f from the fans might have on everything. But right now it really feels like we're having a Babylon 5 resurgence. And I'm very happy about that. You know, The Road Home wasn't the greatest thing ever, but it was enjoyable enough. And, you know, Lane Strzinski do his thing. Uh, we, you know, it, it'll be... He made, like, such great things for the original show, so I really want to see how he does it with the new show, you know? So I'm still, v I'm very excited about that, um, even as a fan of the original show. You know, I know lots of people are like, oh, it's sacrilege to redo it, but I'm like, you know, I'm very, I, I, I'm fine. Like, I want to see a new take on it. But yeah, wa watch any of this Babylon 5 stuff for yourself if you don't believe me. It's definitely worth your time. Alright, so I guess that's it for this episode. Um, I think I did all the plugs. You know, I'm on Letterboxd, Goodreads, and yada yada yada. So yeah, I hope you enjoyed this well, really long episode. Uh, but without further delay, have a good day.